Shalom. Thank you for listening to this week's message from Emmaus Road Fellowship, where we encounter Yeshua in the scriptures. Check out our website at walkingemmausroad.org, where you'll find additional teachings and information on visiting us in Kingwood, Texas. If you've been blessed by this ministry, please consider giving to support Emmaus Road's mission of spreading the good news of the kingdom. May God grant you shalom in the name of Yeshua, our Messiah. Bless God. Did anybody have anything during worship that you saw or wanted to share? When we were praying in here before service, it was just over and over the word patience. That so often we pray for years and years for something to happen, and our life goes on, and we have good and we bad, and sometimes we have wonderful, but that prayer is not answered. And so, I don't know, he just said, patience, remember patience. And uh, I just wanted to share that. Amen. Thank you for sharing that. And Suzanne. I did keep hearing the word faithful, and God is faithful, but I began thinking about Job, because Job felt so alone when no, he had, he didn't feel the presence of God, yet because God, it was pressed on my heart because God sees the beginning from the end, he already knew the outcome, and he is faithful, and so he knew that Job would be faithful into the end as well, and so I know that even though we go through difficult times because God knows the beginning from the end and because we do belong to Him, we're going to be taken care of. We're going to be all right. Even though it seems like it's dark right now, the dawn is coming, and He's saying to hold on. Amen. This morning, whenever you blew the shofar to start service, I had this feeling all of a sudden in picture that all these heavenly angels were gathering like a call to worship. And they came and filled the room. And it was so neat because though we may be smaller congregation, I felt in my spirit that we there were so many beings in the room worshiping, getting ready to worship with us. And it was just such a neat feeling getting up to lead worship and knowing that I'm not only leading us, I'm leading the heavenly angels mm-hmm. to worship the king with us. I just thought that was so neat and encouraging. I thought I would share. Amen. That That is something that we're often unaware of, well, one, of course, angels, but, but two, just that the words we speak and the worship we pour out, it goes beyond just this room, beyond the physical that we can know. It's making declarations in the heavens, and uh, I think it resonates far beyond what we can imagine. Amen. Anyone else? Go, Ben. Yeah. So when we were saying, you know, um, I love your presence, one of the things that, you know, kind of just to loop everything together a little bit, is just that this is, you know, a point in time where, you know, it's just that the heavenly host is coming together, his church is coming together. You know, there is the part of the faith that comes in to step in that he is going to be here, that his presence is going to be here. And then it's also just having the the patience to know that he is going to show up as well too so i think it's one of those things when hearing that song this morning just being filled just with joy that our god is here with us right now in this moment of time and the things that of the world that we leave at the door right the hurt the pain the suffering and stuff like all that's renewed here all that's healed here all that's met because we're stepping into a very holy moment in time.
Amen. So this week, our portion is Ra'eh, which is see, like see with your eyes, right? But it's, it's not always seeing with your eyes, even like what we were talking about with the words that were shared here just a few moments ago. We're talking about a patience and a waiting for the Lord and trusting in Him to move really believing for the things that are not seen, even the things that are happening right now around us that we can't see with the eyes, our spirit can perceive it. And so in some ways we have limitations with the eyes or even our understanding of things that we need to be able to see beyond to be able to take hold of that which God is really doing. And and this week, as I was reading the portion I was thinking, okay, what's the big picture of this week's portion? And when I tried to summarize it, I thought, well, really, it's a contrast between worship of idols, false gods, versus worship of the one true God. And I thought about the two paths that are spoken of in the Didache. So the Didache is a first century writing that was an instruction to the Gentiles or the nations that were coming to faith in Yeshua and how they could begin their walk of faith with him. And in it, it opens up and says, there are two ways, one of life and one of death. However, there is a great difference between the two ways. Now, the way of life is this. First, you shall love God who made you. Second, you shall love your fellow as yourself. Whatever you do not want to happen to you, do not do to one another. And then it goes through and there's a lot of teachings that are very much like what we read in the Gospels. And then it comes to chapter 5 and it says, But this is the way of death, which is first of all evil and full of curses, murder, adultery, lust, sexual immorality, theft, idolatry, magic, use of potions, robbery, false witness, hypocrisy, duplicity, deceit, arrogance, malice, egocentrism, greed, foul speech, jealousy, overconfidence, loftiness, and pretension. That's a long list. And they weren't even done. I stopped. Okay. <laughs> but, but the contrast between the two, one is that this way of life described here almost seems simple. If you, if you just read the, the two things of love God and love your neighbor. Now, of course, it's much more complicated than that, but the simplicity of what should your focus be? Your focus should be on loving your creator and then loving your fellow man and now figuring out how to do that. And the way of death is not walking in those things. It's doing the opposite of showing love to your creator and showing love to your fellow man. And there's this long list of trappings along the way. And these two paths, you know, of life and of death actually kind of mirror two paths that we find in this week's portion. And again, it's the way of idolatry versus the worship of the one true God. So in, De in Deuteronomy eleven twenty six, we open up with the call to, to see these two different paths. The scripture says, See, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today, and the curse if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God. But turn aside from the way that I am commanding you today to go after other gods that you have not known. Right? So he's, he's giving a call 
for us to choose the blessing or to choose the curse. And his great desire is that we choose the blessing and seek after God in all of our ways. And then continuing on in Deuteronomy 12, verse 1 through 7, we'll see these two different approaches. These are the statutes and rules that you shall be careful to do in the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess. All the days that you live on the earth, you shall, dis- you shall surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess serve their gods. On the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree, you shall tear down their, their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and burn their Asherim with fire. You shall chop down the carved images of their gods and destroy their name out of that place. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. But you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. There you shall go, and there you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contribution that you, that you present, your vow offerings, your free will offerings, and the firstborn of your herd and of your flock. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice, you and your households, in all that you undertake, in which the Lord your God has blessed you. So here in this passage, you see the call to smash the idolatry and not walk in those ways, but rather to walk in God's ways of drawing near to him. And in Deuteronomy 12, 2 through 3, we saw a call to destroy the altars. We see that the altars were everywhere throughout the land, on the hills, under every green leafy tree. And he says to go and destroy those to obliterate the names of those gods from those places. And then in Deuteronomy 12, 5 through 7, the contrast here is you shall have an altar only at one place where God will place his name, right? So their name is being dispossessed from the land and God is placing his name there and saying, not as they worship shall you worship, but according to the way that I instruct. And now the other thing is in this passage, he said to rejoice in all of your offerings, Rejoice in the offerings. And he also says, do not create your own altars um, because you're having to go where God has chosen. And then in concluding Deuteronomy 12, verses 29 through 31, the scripture says, when the Lord your God cuts off before you the nations whom you go in to dispossess, and you dispossess them and dwell in their land, take care that you not be ensnared to follow them after they have been destroyed before you, and that you do not inquire about their gods, saying, how did these nations serve their gods, that I also may do the same? You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way, for every abominable thing that the Lord hates they have done for their gods, for they even burn their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods. And so God gives an admonition to them to say that the worship of these false gods is an abomination and even decrying the aspect of the child sacrifice that was taking place. Now, in giving a, a little bit more of just a summary of how the rest of the portion goes, I'll give an overview and then we'll come back to these discussions of the two paths. But there's this first admonition of you're not going to walk in the ways of the nations before you're, you're going to walk in God's ways. And he says, so don't follow the nations or what the foreigners do. 
And then in Deuteronomy 13, there's three warnings about do not listen to a prophet who tries to lead you away with false signs and wonders. Do not listen to your family member, even if they try to lead you away. And then thirdly, even if a whole city turns away from the Lord, you shall not follow after them. So he says there's a threat from the outside, there's a threat from the inside. Do not be drawn away from God's word. And then in Deuteronomy 14 and 15, we see a shift from the admonitions to an explanation of who this treasured possession is, who the people are, and how they're to walk. And so God is desiring to place his name upon the people. And he says, if you are my treasured possession and I want to place my name upon you, you will be distinct. You will be separate from the other nations. And so he gives commands about not following the mourning practices of the foreigners. He gives commands regarding eating foods, staying away from that which is unclean. And then he gives a command about the second tithe. And with the command of the second tithe, this is one that is brought to Jerusalem and eaten in, the, in God's presence and shared with the Levites, the widows, and the orphans. Okay, so it's something that it's taking the goodness that God has given and going to rejoice before him and with that bounty sharing it with others, right? So it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's something where you get to participate in the goodness, but you're also sharing in the goodness with others. And then continuing in Deuteronomy 15, we see the commands regarding the Shemitah and the setting free of, from debts and a call to generously lend to your brother who's in need. There's also the Hebrew slave being set free and the call to generously provide for the slave as they go free. Again, this is all, all this generosity and giving is a reflection of how God has blessed his people. And then they in turn bless others so that the others can succeed and prosper as well. And then, of course, there's the call to sanctify every firstborn. And then finally, our portion concludes in, in Deuteronomy 16 with the three pilgrimage festivals of Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. Okay. Again, with the focus there of coming before God at his times and rejoicing before him in all that he's given. So when we look at the two paths that were laid out before with the way of life, the way of death, the way of idolatry versus the way of worshiping the one true God. We need to look at what some of the fundamental differences are. You know, I highlighted just a moment ago about how with the worship of God, we're rejoicing with the goodness that he's given us and we're sharing it with others and we're coming into his presence. That's a very different thing than what the worship of false gods was. The worship of false gods was not in, re like in response to the goodness of their God. It was out of a desire to get something from their God, either to prevent the wrath of their God from, from coming down on them or in order to receive something that that God could give them. It was a bit of a, I give you something to satisfy your anger and then even to cause you to, to give me a blessing, right? Because you'd have the God of goddess of fertility. And so you'd say, well, I, I want 
the, uh, the land to produce, and I want to have offspring, so I will give to the goddess of fertility so that I can have these things. It's a seeking something for yourself that you otherwise could not get, as opposed to coming to God who is pouring out blessings on you and you're responding to his love, not giving him anything that he needs, except your heart and your desire to seek after him and his presence, right? And so there's a big contrast there between really what was taking place in the worship of these false gods with the aspect of murder, of trying to twist their arms to get what you wanted or to try to uh, forestall any kind of negative consequences, as opposed to coming to the one God as an act of love, seeking relationship with him and having the blood actually serve as an atonement for you, as opposed to be something that satisfies a bloodthirsty God. That's the way that the nations saw their gods, is giving offerings to satisfy the need of that God. Not so with the worship of our God. Rather, the blood, God said he gave it for your atonement on the altar, for a purpose of drawing near, a relational aspect. And when we look at the difference between how one would approach, approach the false gods versus the one true God, there's a, another fundamental difference that comes up, and it's really the aspect of control. See, when someone's coming and trying to get something from God, they're trying to get their way. But when you're just coming to God for his presence and his relationship and love, you're not trying to get your way you're seeking something else. And, and when you do that, you're actually placing yourself into his hands and saying, God, I trust you. I have all kinds of needs, all kinds of desires, and you know all of them. And I know you're the one who can provide them. And in your will, in your timing, you'll pour those out, even as Trish was mentioning earlier about the call for patience. You know, we pray to God and we ask for healing, we ask for provision, any kind of things like that. We then lay that in his hands and we trust him as the one who loves us and desires to do good to us and has been faithful to us all our lives to bring forth that. As opposed to saying, if, if, I'm, if I need it, then I'm gonna have to get it for myself. Let me find whatever way I can do to get it for myself. But the, the truth is that with God's desire to bless us, we don't have to go out and twist and turn in order to get in order to receive what we need. Now there's an aspect, of course, where we go out and we do work, right? But our trust is in the God who provides and the God who sees our need. And then we align our hearts to be able to see that he is capable and that in his timing, he'll bring it. Now, in speaking of the provision of God, for us, and in thinking of the, the two ways, the way of life and the way of death, that brought me to thinking about Yeshua, who said that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And if we go take a look at John 14, 1 through 6, we'll see Yeshua's encouragement. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, 
Would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also, and you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Yeshua said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, when we see this, Yeshua says, I am the way. I'm the way of life. And, and what was striking to me in reading it this, this time, in verse 4, Yeshua says, And you know the way to where I am going. And Thomas asks, and Yeshua says, I am the way. Okay, so when he says, You know the way to where I am going, he's saying, I am going to the Father and you know the way to the Father because you know me. And that's really what he explained where he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So when he was, you know, if you were to try to re-put these words together in a different way, he would say, and you know the way to where I am going to the Father. You know the way to the Father. And he says that the way to the Father is through Yeshua, who is the way, the truth, and the life. It's just a really cool picture that God says, I place before you a blessing and a curse. Choose the blessing. Choose life. Do not choose death. Choose Yeshua, who is the way of life, who is the one who will actually bring you into my presence. And God gave us this way as a gift so that we can have his life. He gave us his son, Yeshua, who is the bread of life and the one who gives us the living water, right? In John 6, 35, Yeshua says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And now with this thing, right? He says, whoever believes in me shall never thirst. You know that he gives to those who don't even know how to ask for it. God gives his son to those who didn't even know they needed his son, right? So there's things that we know that we need and we can ask for, but there are things that we don't even know we need, but God knows in his goodness and he gives abundantly. So he gives Yeshua, who's this bread of life. If you think back to the woman at the well, when Yeshua talked to the Samaritan woman in John 4, she didn't know who she was talking to, and she didn't even know what to ask for. But he had asked her for water from the well, and she asked a question about, should you even be talking to me since I'm a woman and a Samaritan? And Yeshua answered her. He said, if you knew the gift of God, and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Yeshua said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. 
The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Such a wonderful picture of the regeneration that we can walk in when we have this bread of life and the living water within us. And in Isaiah 55, 1 through 13, we're actually going to read all of Isaiah 55, it's short, but it's part of this week's Heftarah. And the prophet says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you did not know, and a nation that did, that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so may my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress, instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle, and it shall, and it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. So within this, there's so much of God saying, I'm desiring to pour out blessings upon you, blessings that you can't fathom. Come and receive the good gift that I am offering, and you'll go out with joy. And the trees of the field will clap their hands. There was an expectation of things changing, and even in, in Isaiah 54, which began this week's Heftarah reading, there is a call of consolation that's being given. We're here in verse 11. He says, O afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted, behold, I will set your stones in antimony and lay your foundations with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of agate and your gates of carbuncles and all your walls of precious stones. All your children shall be taught by the Lord and great shall be the peace of your children. He's saying you don't see it right now, but it's coming. You don't see it right now, but it's coming. But, but come to the waters and drink. And I will fill you with the living water. And I will bring forth that which I know I can bring. Now with this aspect of, of the waiting and believing for the thing that's not yet seen, 
That goes right back to the beginning of our, of our portion when we read earlier in, in Deuteronomy eleven twenty six about the blessing and the curse that's laid before you. I want to pick right back up there in verse 29 where he says, And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it, you shall, you shall set the blessing on Mount Gerizim and the curse on Mount Abal. Are they not beyond the Jordan, west of the road, toward the going down of the sun, and the land of the Canaanites who live in the Arabah, opposite Gilgal, beside the Oak of Moreh? For you are to cross over the Jordan to go in to take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving you. And when you possess it and live in it, you shall be careful to do all the statutes and the rules that I'm setting before you today. Now, when he speaks of crossing the land and coming to this place of the blessing and the curse, it's a place that is not right next to the Jordan. It's a place that they're going to have to go on a journey to get to. And that journey is going to take time. Right? But he's saying that you're going to come and you're going to set the blessing on Mount Gerizim and the, and the curse on Mount Abal, which is more in the central of the land of Israel. It's near Shechem, okay, which is right about where Yeshua was when he met the woman at the well and they spoke of Jacob's well. But he's saying... it. It makes me wonder, well, why didn't he choose a place that was right when they're going to cross the land? Why not, let's come in and let's talk about the blessing and the curse there and let's get ready to go and take it all. He was saying there's something beyond the immediate that I'm going to bring you to. And you may even question in your heart, how am I going, am I, how am I going to get there? How is this going to work out? But he's saying, I've set it there, I've called you to it, and I'm going to bring you to it. And you can trust that I will lead you to where I've said I will take you and I will bring it about. And it requires a following of the Lord in order to reach it. Going to the place where he says, I will show you it. Just as he did with Abraham. When, I mean, God did this multiple times with Abraham, right? He said, go out to a land where, where I will show you. You know, leave your homeland. But then there's another time that he also told Abraham to go out to trust him and go to a place where God would show him. And that was with regard to the binding of Isaac. In Genesis 22, verses 1 through 2, God says, it says, actually Genesis 2, verses 1 through 2. I'm in the wrong spot. I, put, I typed this in wrong, so I'm not going to read there. I'm going to go to it in this text, and you can not follow along unless you follow along in your Bible. <laughs> oh, numbers are a tricky thing. I thought that verse looked wrong. Okay, Genesis 22, 22, 1 through 2. And it happened after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he replied, here I am. And he said, please take your son, your only one, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and bring him up there as an offering upon one of the mountains, which I shall tell you. All right, so here it is. He says that God tested Abraham. This is like what we talked about a little bit last week, the difference between a, a testing and a temptation. God was testing Abraham to prove him so that blessings could be poured out. So, he, so Abraham, you know, we know he gets up and he takes 
his son, and they set out on a three-day journey. On the third day, he lifts his eyes and he sees the mountain. And, and in Genesis 22, verse 13, actually starting with verse 11. Good job correcting it, Jeremy. Way to go. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his thorns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Okay, so the translation in this case is the Lord will provide. In the Hebrew, it's Adonai Yireh. Okay, the Lord will see. The Lord will see. And so you could translate this, the Lord will see, and it said on the mount of the Lord it shall be seen. Okay, the need seen, the provision seen, that God would see and he would give the provision. In this case, he gave the ram in place of the son. And in the case of Yeshua, he gave the son in place of those who were headed to destruction. He gave the son as the way of life as opposed to the way of death. And even in the case of Isaac, he gave the ram as the provision of life in place of Isaac. But within the story, I bring it up because Abraham had chosen a life of following God. He had chosen the way of life and being willing to surrender himself and his desires for the desire of God and to follow God wherever he would lead. He was surrendering control even to the point where he was willing to give up his son because God asked it of him. He was willing to give up the promise that he had waited on for so many years, and then even that he had walked in the promise for so many years, right? He waited from the promise of having offspring for 30 years until he had Isaac and knew that he had the promised seed. And now he had walked with Isaac for 37 years, and now God asks him for it. And Abraham says, God, I give you control. And I submit to your desire. And because he did, God was able to pour out blessings upon him and many generations to follow. That all the nations of the earth would be blessed in his seed because of his faithfulness. Now, when we talk about this aspect of him having to surrender control, it makes me think we're called to do the same. But how many of you like not being in control? Or how many of you like being out of control? <laughs> and don't answer that question, right? But, but there's actually a difference between not being in control and being out of control, okay? It's a key difference, and I'll give you an example, okay? So when you're going somewhere in a car, there's a driver and there's a passenger. The passenger is not in control of where the car is going. 
Rather, they're trusting the driver to get them to the destination that the driver desires them to take. Okay, so that's, that's an issue, that's an example of not being in control. Now, on the other hand, an example of being out of control is imagine you're a passenger in the car with a student driver. <laughs> yeah, okay, so it's, that's a little bit more out of control. But just, you know, sometimes we, we preach from where we are in life, and I do happen to have a 16-year-old son. Uh, but to give him credit, he's very much under control. He's doing a great job. But, but you know, it's, it's the... I don't know. It, it's it's funny. There's there's this aspect of, you know, if you were out of control in the car, it might be a situation where you're hydroplaning or you're on ice and there's nothing that you can do. You're just headed on a course. But if we somehow you know bring this back to the message and the idea of uh, being surrendered to God and trusting Him, we can see it as God being behind the wheel and us not being in control and just following, you know, letting him take us wherever we could go. But in, in some ways, I don't like that analogy because it's really too passive for what God is calling us to do, right? Because it's not just that he calls us to get in the car and he's going to take us wherever he wants to go and we're just along for the ride. Instead, he says, okay, you're in the driver's seat, right? And I've given you my spirit to lead you, to guide you, to speak to you. And you have a choice today to choose to listen to where the Spirit is leading you or to go your own way. You have a way of life and a way of death. You have a way of blessing and a way of curse. But you're going to have to tune your heart to listen to this Holy Spirit and to follow Him and to put your flesh down. You have to actually choose to submit or to, to, yeah, it's a choosing to submit your will and give up the control that you think is right in order to follow the one who sees the end from the beginning, who knows what the path is, who's going to lead you into the path of life, whose ways are higher than your ways, whose thoughts are not your thoughts. That's the one that you want to be submitted to. That's the one who you really want in control. Because we see through a, a mirror dimly, right? We see with a veil. We can't possibly understand what is good on our own. And so we trust that God's going to bring that which is good. And as, as I'm saying this, it's making me think back to Numbers 24 with the story of Bilaam. Okay, we all know that Bilaam went to went out to curse Israel for Balak. But it turned out that Bilaam could only do, he could only speak blessings over the nation. And in the third time that he comes out to, to speak, okay, yeah, in okay, see, he, he speaks three blessings over the nation. And Balak is furious with him. And this is in Numbers 24, 12. Balaam said to Balak, Did I not speak to your emissaries whom you sent to me, saying, If Balak were to give me his house, house full of silver and gold, I cannot transgress the word of the Lord to do good or bad on my own. 
doing good or bad on his own is where he chooses what is good and what is bad as opposed to, I mean, okay, so let me, let me say that again. God determines what is good and bad. When man determines what is good or bad, not in the counsel, apart from the counsel of God, that is when we move in error, okay? But anyway, he's saying that he can't, he can't do good or bad on his own. He was having to speak whatever God speaks. And in this, in, in verse 17, he says, I shall see him, but not now. I shall look at him, but it is not near. A star has issued from Jacob, and a scepter bearer has risen from Israel, and he shall pierce the nobles of Moab and undermine all the children of Seth. And he goes on to speak of that, but he's prophesying the coming Messiah. Yeah, he says, I see him, but not now. I shall look at him, but it's not near. This is for a time that's far out in the distance, but I behold it now. A star has issued from Jacob, and a scepter bearer has risen from Israel. That's the hope of the Messiah that was not visible then, but would one day be visible when God would bring about and reveal his mystery, right? And so within, within this way that we choose, within the way that we go, there is a perseverance, there's a trust, there's a surrendering control as Abraham did and recognizing that's what God calls his treasured people to do. And he calls us to do it for our good, that he can pour out blessing. And so as we're walking along this path and as we're listening for the Holy Spirit and training ourselves to hear his voice, may we have faith to follow, to trust in that which we can't yet see, but believing the one who does see all things, that in God's mountain it may be revealed, and that his son may be revealed in us as our redemption draws nigh. Amen. Does anybody have anything that you want to share? So growing up, there's been tragedies that have removed things from my life, right? If God, if God had not allowed that to happen and these things had not been removed, they would have ended in the destruction of my covenant relationship with God. And some things that I have prayed for, if God had allowed me to receive them, those things would have ended in the destruction of my covenant relationship with God. And so I think one of the powerful things of prayer is that it is an opportunity to align our will to God's will. Because then when we know his will, then we know what we should be praying for. And those things will come true. Yeah. And it goes back to what you're saying about it. it's not, it, it is letting go of that control. It is letting go of what we want. Because what we think we want, if we could see where it would lead us, we may not want it. Right? And so there is the seeking of God's will. Um, Amen. That's great. And, you know, um, I thought about this earlier, and then you sharing that made me think about it. Uh, and I know I've shared this many years, uh, and today is August 12th. Now, why is that a big deal that it's August 12th? So in August 12th, 2008, um, Heather and I were really introduced to the Spirit. 
And it was a powerful move of God where he uh, brought about a deliverance to David. David was 15 months old, and uh, I won't give the whole story, but God had been teaching me to hear his voice and to respond right away, like to, to learn to respond more quickly to what he was telling me. And on that morning, he gave me a word that I had to respond to immediately, and I did. And God moved in power uh, to begin uh, a healing that he's working out in David. And that was the encounter with the Spirit that morning was, uh, it was so eye-opening and kind of rattling too because it was such a contrast to what I understood in the walk of faith. And so I began trying to learn more and understand more. And during the couple weeks following um, that deliverance, the Lord told me that he was going to heal David through me because David has had a large number of anaphylactic allergies throughout his life. We've been to the emergency room many, many times, and God has delivered him out of death many, many times. Praise God. And when I received that word, and when all this stuff was stirring in the spirit, and I received that word, I thought God was going to do it right away. I was like, this is it, you know? And so, I mean, I thought, it, I really did. I thought it was going to be almost instantaneous. When we found out about a healing ministry that actually happened to be right here in Kingwood. So we drove up to Kingwood and uh, he was prayed for. And I was like, surely this is going to happen. And I was just pursuing understanding, pursuing the Lord. But I was, I, at some point I was pursuing so much of David's healing that that became too much of a focus, if that makes sense. Um, whereas the pursuit is of the Lord, and then the blessings and the healing and the, all those other things, they flow out of that relationship. And I had to learn to walk in the tension of the promise, but not the complete fulfillment. And that's still a process. And, and God has been healing David progressively along the way where it's dramatic where he is today compared to where he was as a small child. And so the, the healing is still continuing. But this is part of the patience. This is part of the process of God working things out that we can't fully see or understand. But he says, just come with me and follow. And so, like you were saying, Richard, it's God's working something out in the answered prayers and the unanswered prayers and the things that are removed and in the things that are given. He knows what we need and he never leaves us. He's been faithful all our lives and he will be faithful all our lives. We just have to give it to him and say, I'm trusting you every step of the way. Amen. Anyone else? I was just thinking and listening to, to everyone and to what you were teaching today. And as, I, as, as we learn to submit to God in obedience through Yeshua, 
out of our love for Him and our trust in Him, the further we're going to go into the promised land with Him physically and spiritually, the more we are going to be set apart and become a different people. Mm. And because of that, people, the congregation will be used to glorify God and to bring people into the covenant. Amen. Amen. Okay, anyone else? All right, let's pray. Father, we bless you and thank you for your goodness, your kindness, your mercies that you pour out upon us. Lord, we thank you that you are the God who sees and the God who provides. Lord, our heart is to trust you, to seek after you. Help us, Lord, to be sensitive to the leading of your Holy Spirit, to follow after you even when it doesn't make sense, for us to submit to you, to give you control. Lord, we, we bless you and we thank you that all our lives you have been faithful and so good to us. We give you praise and glory this morning in the name of Yeshua. Amen. Now, uh, Jared's going to come up and share with us about Rosh, the upcoming month of Elul, which begins next week. All right. Next week, Thursday night, to be exact. All right, so we are coming up on Rosh Hodesh Elul. Um, so that is the uh, Elul is the sixth month of the biblical calendar, and it is the last month on the civil calendar. Um, it does start next week, Thursday night. Um, there are no official holidays in the month of Elul, um, but it is set apart as a month of teshuva or repentance in spiritual preparation for the high holy days of the next month, which is Tishri. And the sages always say that if we do not end the year consciously, we will not be able to move forward properly. When we do not own our past before letting it go, it will resurface and continue to repeat itself. So there's an element of teshuva and repentance in the month of Elul, and it's not to remind yourself how bad you are, and how terrible you are, but it's to allow joy to come into your heart so that God can remind you that you don't have to be that person that you once were and that God is growing you um, in spirit. So the meaning uh, of Elul, so prior to the Babylonian exile, this was just known as the sixth month. Um, the Babylonian and Akkadian name for this month was Elulu, which in Canaanite means to elulate, whatever. Huh? How about that? Uh, it also means shout for joy. How about the, uh, the, to go ahead and put some English to it there? Um, others say that it comes from a Babylonian word that means to harvest. Um, so some sages say that the foundation of this word from an Aramaic word is alal, which means to carefully search, and is also made up of the Hebrew letters aleph, lamed, vav, lamed which is an acronym for um, Song of Solomon's chapter 6, verse 3, which says, I am my beloved, and my beloved is mine. So it is a month of soul searching. And traditionally, it is also known as a time when the king is in the field. Most often, the king is enclosed in his palace where it takes specific appointments, special protocols, or, for the most part, only accessible through intermediaries. 
But during the month of Elul, we know that the king comes out into the field and he is more accessible. So as Isaiah 55, 6 says, Seek the Lord while he may be found and call upon him while he is near. Um, the blessing associated with this month is God's presence. That's always a blessing. Um, but it's even accentuated a little bit more this month. Um, the above point, the above point to the idea that during the month of Elul, it is a time of closeness, a period where connection with God becomes easier than at other times of the year. Because of such closeness and access to God, it is a time of inner work, healing, and depending and deepening one's relationship with God. So some of the areas of healing for the month of Elul, um, healing of rejection, isolation, and limited spiritual vision. Some of the actions needed for those is to work on relational connections. Some of the spiritual warfare for this month is don't buy into unworthiness. Again, don't go into the repentance reminding yourself of how unworthy you are. I have an old um, trainer and work, and he says, whatever you focus on expands. And so the idea is that when we focus on repentance, we focus on how God is renewing us and redeeming us and bringing us into a higher level and into a greater level of, um, of his glory. And it's not so much the focus on beating ourselves down constantly. Um, so the midot, or the virtues and values of character development, is forgiveness, decisiveness, separation. Um, as we go to God and we are brought an awareness of things that we need to repent of and to grow from, um, there's things that we need to forgive others so that we don't hold on to, um, to any of that in our hearts as well. Um, the theme this month is repentance, reconciliation, mercy, forgiveness, and the bride. The holidays and feasts, officially there's none, as we had mentioned, uh, but this month is set apart as a month of teshuva to usher in the high holy days coming up in the next month. So it was mentioned in the scriptures just once in Nehemiah chapter 6, verse 15. So, uh, and that says this, So the wall was finished on the 25th day of Elul in 52 days. Um, this is a season where there is an extra measure of grace to break negative cycles in your life and even to redeem time that has been lost. It is a month of soul searching, but this should be done with a sense of purpose and joy with the attitude that we will overcome our challenges. This is done during the season of this is done during the season of Teshuvah, which is a 40-day time frame from the first of Elul until the 10th of Tishri, which is Yom Kippur. So in Jewish tradition, these 40 days are also called Yemi Ratzon, or the days of favor, since it was during this time that the Lord forgave the Jewish nation after the sin of the golden calf. And since teshuva is a mitzvah, like all mitzvahs, it should be done with intention, determination, and joy. That being said, the month of Elul represents the time Moses spent on Sinai preparing the second set of tablets after that incident. So he ascended on Rosh Hashanah Elul and then descended 40 days later on the 10th of Tishri, the end of Yom Kippur, when the repentance of the people was complete. Because of this, 
Elul is a time for us to focus on forgiving ourselves, our family, our community, and everyone in our lives. It is also a time to journal and reflect on events of the last year, considering who we need to forgive or ask forgiveness from, and contemplating on who we want to be in the coming year. When we put it down on paper, it is easier to see the bigger picture and envision what we want to manifest in the coming year. Write the vision down. To help inspire this act of self-inventory and process of change, starting at the beginning of Rosh Hadesh Elul, it is customary to blow the shofar every day to awaken us for the coming high holy days, especially at five in the morning next to your, next to your neighbors. And just let them know, hey, I'm helping you out, trust me. So it is also customary to read Psalm 27 every day during these upcoming 40 days. It is said that my light in the Psalms is associated with Rosh Hashanah. The word my salvation refers to the atonement given on Yom Kippur. And later in the Psalm, it also mentions how God hides David in a sukkah, which is associated with Sukkot. Therefore, since it alludes to all three of the fall feasts, Psalm 27 is regarded as a thematic Psalm for this upcoming season. So starting next week, Thursday night, start reading your Psalm 27 as part of your, your um, whatever uh, protocol you got going on. Um, Jeremiah 29.3 says that you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all of your heart. So what an awesome season we are entering, where there's a greater grace to access the heart of God and a greater grace to redeem lost time, to return to the ways of God, to adjust our thinking, to repent, and to come into alignment with God's ways and his purposes. Elul is a time to show up, to reorient, and recreate our lives, for this is the essence of teshuva. So let's pray. So may it be your will, Lord our God and God of our fathers, that you begin for us this month for good and for blessing. You may give to us long life, a life of peace, a life of goodness, a life of blessing, and a life of sustenance, a life of physical health, a life in which there is reverence of heaven and dread of sin, a life in which there is no shame or humiliation, a life of wealth and honor, a life in which we love Torah and fear God, a life in which the Lord fulfills all our heart's desires for good. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this message, please consider sharing it with a friend or family member and help us out by giving a review on iTunes or other podcast platform. Check out our website at walkingemmausroad.org for additional teachings and information about visiting Emmaus Road in Kingwood, Texas.